And welcome. This is May 15th. I'm Bruno DiGiulio with Bruno with the Works at RacingWithBruno.com. And I'm here to do a podcast concerning a topic that has been very controversial over the last couple of years. Lasix, medication and pets, performance enhancing drugs. I'm not an expert. I can tell you what I think, but I'm not an expert. I'm not one that understands what Lasix does to horses. So the next best thing is to bring on someone that can and can eloquently talk about it and tell you from a science perspective what you can take away from that and how to actually apply it. This gentleman I have seen since 2012 his, his articles. His name is Sid Gustafson. He's a veterinarian and he's a novelist. But he's always been the guy that I've looked at because a few things that he wrote that I knew he understood racehorses and what has been happening in our game for quite some time. So without further ado, let's go to the phone lines. For some of us that want to take a look at what's going on in racing, kind of understand medication, and especially Lasix. His name is Sid Gustafson. He's a veterinarian. Uh, he's been around a while. Uh, and uh, he's got some great stories for us. And he's got a book out that we'll get a chance to talk about. Sid, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruno. Happy to be here. Um, we were talking before we got on the air, and you were telling me you know, how you started in veterinarian and how your dad made you get uh, horses urine to get them tested. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. And when you went up to Finger Lakes, you were telling me you dealt with a lot of horses on soundness and, and, and even having to deal with uh, you know, performance-enhancing drugs. Well, yes. Um, so, like I say, uh, you... Uh, uh, you know, when I was young, I was raised in Montana. My father was a veterinarian, and uh, I was the oldest of five children, and we lived on a horse and cattle ranch. And as my other siblings followed, uh, they needed more attention than I, so I got a, sort of got shoved out with the horses, and the horses sort of became my babysitter. I like to think I was raised by horses. And the nice thing about that was I didn't have adults there trying to... And, my thinking about the nature of horses, I learned from it firsthand, uh, mingling with them, hanging out with them without adult supervision. Uh, so I had that background, which I'm really quite grateful for. It gives me a little different insight than other people have that are influenced by people telling them how horses are. Uh, so as I became 11 or 12, my father started uh, managing the racetrack meet at the Mariah's Fair in Shelby, Montana. He to catch the post race urine the horses, and when I heard this was a job, I just was sort of shocked and had to explain why this needed to be done. And uh, so it was explained to me. Sometimes uh, horses would be given 
illicit drugs to either make them run faster or just do them, and that and so, go ahead. No, uh, uh, what I was going to say is, um, can drugs make horses run faster? Absolutely. Uh, horses are extremely vulnerable to the performance-enhancing effects of drugs or the performance-decreasing effects, you know. Uh, so they can either be hopped or stiffed, uh, and everything in between calmed down. A lot of horses were too nervous. They weren't prepared properly, and sedative-type drugs, calmers, could help them perform better. Now, you have been a very... You've been against the Lasix for as long as I've been reading about you. And this goes all the way back to 2012 when, I, when we were working together with the New York Times on their, on their rail program. Um, first of all, can you explain to our listeners what Lasix does for a racehorse? Well, it subdues this untoward side effect of pulmonary hemorrhage, which is induced by substandard horsemanship. In order for a horse's lungs to stay healthy, we watch horses in natural settings and see that they move 60 to 70 percent of the time. And for a horse to walk and move is to breathe. And this is the way they maintain strong, resilient lungs is by abundant daily locomotion. And a lot of trainers in Europe and all the places that Lasix aren't allowed make sure that horses get this essential enrichment uh, of abundant daily locomotion. In addition to the training regimen, they're walked a couple hours in the morning and three or four hours each afternoon. In America, when Lasix was allowed, uh, this particular essential enrichment to maintain healthy lungs was eliminated because Lasix was allowed to be used to suppress this untoward sequelae of locking horses down all day as a horse stands in a stall all day and doesn't get this abundant daily locomotion their lungs deteriorate and then when they go to race they're vulnerable to bleed and so in addition to this abundant daily locomotion uh, creating resilient strong lungs it creates real resilient strong legs so lasix allows both those things to be taken away strong lungs and strong legs and as well it's a performance enhancing drug said to increase a length uh, for every furlong a horse runs so make horses run faster than their natural ability allows and we're going to allow lasix to subdue the proper development and health of lung and limb we're going to run into breakdown trouble uh, of course we've all unfortunately seen that in jurisdictions where Lasix isn't allowed, uh, you know, the breakdown rate, rate is much, much less, 10 times less in many places. So Lasix seems to be one of the essential problems uh, with the uh, public's outcry that it's become, you know, inhumane because of all the breakdowns and subsequent euthanasias. Is Lasix imbued a potent cocktail in itself? Uh, well, butylamine and all the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, you know, thin the blood and make bleeding more prevalent. Um, but in itself probably doesn't enhance performance, move the horse up like Lasix does, but it does allow a horse to race 
infirmities, and I just took continuing education from Sue Stover just last week, who's the pathologist, the pathologist at the University of California, Davis, who's been doing all the necropsies on all the breakdown horses. And so she went through this two-hour lecture showing how these microfractures develop, and continued to train because the mutant animated cloud and that the horses then, uh, you know, the trainers exceed their adaptability and they break down. So, uh, it, yeah, it is a potent combination and neither, uh, neither favor the horse and both contribute to the breakdown. And then we obtain in a variety of places. California is sort of singled out, but it's certainly happened everywhere. Horses race in America and Lasix and you permissible in the 70s, 80s, by the 90s, all horses, horses were running on Lasix, Biomamine, and a variety of other permitted medications, and that's when the decline started, or the, you know, breakdown endemic uh, began, began to be noticeable, and then the public started noticing, and then it's disenchantment with racing that we're seeing currently, so... I want that all to go away. I think it's essential. We maintain a relationship with horses, and indeed, racing can be accomplished in a humane fashion that favors the horse. Uh, and uh, essential way to do that is eliminate most all. Does Lasix mask any other drugs? Absolutely. Uh, it's a flushing agent, and it's why the doping agency for people disallow it so um, it, it flushes out drugs that would otherwise remain in the horse's system so it allow it allows other drugs that sort of mask infirmities to be given closer to the race so it doesn't mask all drugs and sort of the the people who had permitted it started saying, oh, no, we have such exquisite testing things that it doesn't really mask. But indeed, it does. Uh, it, it masks several drugs and stem. Obviously, it's a diuretic. So uh, that's part of the game, too, with it. Uh, and then in addition to giving it four hours before the race to flush drugs, they start giving it more frequently in the days coming up to the race and so you know we have a lot of negative consequences well the one well the one thing also um, being on a water pill myself and having had lasix for blood pressure medication um, the one thing I always tried to make sure is that I kept up with my potassium and my vitamin D and it seems like I've always had to replenish my my vitamins and my supplements in my system because I was taking that Lasix pill. Uh, I was actually on hydrochloride something to that effect. In fact, I need to look at it. But that, then all of a sudden, my kidneys started to, to, to be affected by it. Are horses' kidneys affected by Lasix? Well, yes. The electrolyte imbalances, what we noticed was this thumps in horses, post-race Lasix horses in the test barn, uh, each time they start beat their uh, diaphragm with B2, and so they, they got this condition called thumps, and that's clearly due to the electrolyte imbalance Lasix causes. You know, and the, and the bigger thing that a lot of people argue about is it draws the calcium out of bone. Uh, 
And so uh, in, in addition to all these other things I've talked about, the latex, to put it simply and bluntly, hollows bone and makes the bone weaker and more prone to breaking. So there's a lot of controversy about that. But uh, if these horses are getting LASIKs frequently for each race and then frequently between races, it certainly in people it's demonstrated to hollow bones. So it's thought to be a contributing factor in that regard as well. So it, it, it alters electrolytes. It, it makes a horse weigh you know, 60 pounds less to 100 pounds less each race, uh, and, and that in itself may be the performance-enhancing effect, in addition to suppressing the bleeding. So, you know, if you enhance performance, uh, you, you know, uh, make horses more vulnerable to breakdown, you exceed their adaptability. Are some horses more apt to be... Um apt to to do better with Lasix uh, than they would without? You know, a a certain small percentage of horses, 5%, are unredeemable bleeders. Uh, Despite doing everything right, a certain percentage will bleed. They are getting all the abundant daily locomotion. And so these horses have some sort of pulmonary or physiological defect that make them prone to bleeding. but the other 95 percent, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, it helps all of them. It suppresses the bleeding that may happen from the deteriorated lungs from the lack of daily locomotion. And uh, it, suppressing bleeding in itself may move a horse up. Obviously, we, we see horses, you know, the quarter pole and back up. And, you know, we come to find out that a lot of those horses bled. So uh, that's how that goes. Now, on top of the Lasix and Butte, we have other agents involved like Clenbuterol, Winstrol, um, a lot, you know, some people talk about EPO, and what came out forward uh, in the FBI indictments on March 9th, we found out that peptides, which is what uh, was being used by Jorge Navarro and Jason Service, um, were used to... And, and correct, please correct me here, but peptides act really have uh, almost a steroidal um, effect as it works on, on a cellular level. But what, if I understand it in reticle correctly, that the, 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 it mimics a cellular level reproduction to to repair tissue, to repair, uh, basically to get a horse to recover quicker. And, and it basically allow, it doesn't allow for the natural production of cells to repair. Is that correct? Well, that's generally the idea. Uh, I don't know that it's all specifically understood, but it's incredible the number of medications that horses, they're really sensitive to uh, having their performance enhance, it's almost a fight-or-flight effect it gives. Virtually any drug given to a horse seems to make them run faster. It's as if they're trying to get away from it or something. So all of the pharmacology can be quite complicated. You know, what we noticed on those horses, first of all, we could see by their pedigrees that they shouldn't really have been, you know, running it in the class they were, and we could see that they'd move up in class, uh, you 
know, in retrospect after the indictments came out. And what a lot of people mentioned was it seemed like they'd get a second wind at the eighth pole, at the quarter pole. And where most horses would be backing up, they started going forward. And that seemed to be more the oxygen-enhancing EPO-type effect, uh, which uh, whether the peptides were responsible for that or different variations of EPO, uh, you know, that weren't being uh, able to be tested. But it seemed like uh, what we were doing was allowing the horse to be more oxygenated towards the end of the race when usually the oxygenation would be waning. Uh, A lot of those performance-enhancing drugs seem to allow them to to hold sway, so to speak, to, to continue accelerating or to not decelerate as much. Some people have asked me what EPO is, because a lot of people mention it, talk about it. And it was explained to me this manner, and please, again, correct me and say, Bruno, you're wrong, here's what it is. But EPO allows the cells to carry more oxygen in the blood, correct? Well, it creates the production of more uh, red blood cells, the oxygen-carrying cells. And, And the horse has a unique spleen and it can store lots of red blood cells. So EPO increases the number of red blood cells, it increases the hematocrit, the red blood cell count. And with more red blood cells, the horse is able to metabolize more oxygen more efficiently. And so that's, it sort of gave them an extra furlong of, you know, good running, uh, extra furlong or two, by enhancing the oxygen carrying capacity. And what, you know, that's the whole key to getting horses to run a mile, mile and a half is to, you know, get that, this endurance up. Uh, and uh, a, a lot of the training strategies try to enhance endurance or what I call wind. Uh, and the EPO facilitated that uh, in an artificial sense and allowed these horses to hold sway. I think most people know the term. What's the what is the um, the negative effects of EPO? Yeah, breakdowns. Uh, if you enhance the endurance of a horse, it exceeds their adaptability, the adaptability of the limbs to maintain their structural integrity. And uh, it, it builds up, it's a cumulative effect. And so all of these drugs we're talking about, uh, unfortunately, uh, have created this increased incidence in breakdowns uh, by enhancing performance in a variety of fashions. So, it, so it, it, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, no, yeah. I, I had a question. Let's stop right there on. So, by doing by by doing more of these performance enhancing drugs, let's say you're doing you know you're doing EPO, let's say you're even doing some clenbuterol, or maybe you're hitting them with Winstrol or something. Um, you're you am I to understand that it builds up a horse, the size, the strength, the power, but you still have to deal within the exoskeleton system. For the pressure points that it's going to put on the horse, thus creating creating stress onto the limbs for a breakdown. Correct. And these breakdowns are cumulative events. The you know four or five races or or twenty works before the breakdown occurs. 
uh, you know, bone damage occurs. And then the, the body tries to repair the bone damage. And yet these drugs allow the horse to continue working and racing. And the repair process cannot keep up with the negative bone breakdown process. Whereas horses that are properly trained, and they graph this out now, you can graph out these horses and predict the ones that are vulnerable by their number of works, the intensity of the works, the races, the timing of the races. And a horse, you know, a normal horse, an average horse can only handle so much of that. And these drugs artificially allow, oh, uh, you know, in, racing and increased works and, and these microfractures develop. And what was interesting about all the necropsies done on the horses that broke down, say they broke down in their left front, which is the most common limb to break down, uh, running the way we do, uh, they would look at the other limb, the right limb, and sure enough, in the right limb would be a developing microfracture that just hasn't reached the breaking point yet. So virtually every horse on the opposite limb you know, we could see the pathology developing as well. So, and that would make um, sense because they're, you know, when I, I always, when I'm watching workouts and I'm writing about them, I'll write about a horse switching body weight. And I hate that. I hate when a horse is not balanced in his works and is putting all the weight on one. And a lot of the times you can see it if they have white polar wraps, you can see one side being much more soiled than the other. And, and one other point with that is, when you're, when you're just looking at horses, and I always looked at certain jurisdictions, and certain in one jurisdiction, their horses look like they're always overweight, big, strong, a lot of muscle on. They don't, they don't look like that, like on the East Coast. You know, they don't, they don't carry that kind of flesh and that kind of weight. And I always thought, you know, what's going on, you know, in California that's making that happen? Is that a perfect storm of all these stuff putting together to make horses faster and stronger that's created that problem that we've had in California? Well, yeah, that's clenbuterol effect. So, you know, the whole stables were on clenbuterol, all of them, and, and it was for the anabolic steroid effect. They outlawed the anabolic steroids after the big brown fiasco and the admission that he was getting them every month. Uh, and so the clenbuterol was indeed, in addition to an airway enhancer, uh, was had these anabolic steroid effects. And so, you know, what you're speaking of specifically was the clenbuterol effect. So it's just been recently totally outlawed. You know, they tried to back it off and back it off. And then there were just the uh, rulings recently uh, where, you know, it came up again and there was zero tolerance now. So they just recently, you know, tried to completely eliminate it. But the, the veterinarians everywhere, but in California, they seem to be the most ingenious medication doctors. It was sort of facilitated and permitted by the California Horse Racing Board and the medical director tolerating a lot of vet work. Uh, and a culture sort of developed there, a pre-race veterinary culture uh, that the regulators weren't over to, able to overcome or sort of actually became part of. And so they're trying to turn that all around now, and it's unfortunate the breakdown pandemic they had, you know, you know, it's unfortunate it had to come to that, but that that's what's happened. Well, so let's talk. Start, yeah. 
yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about clenbuterol because I think that's a great subject. Can you explain to our listeners what does I, I, I believe clenbuterol adds muscle muscle mass? Uh, what do you say when somebody tells you that about clenbuterol? Terms that clenbuterol adds muscle mass to horses. Yes, it does. Uh, it has this anabolic steroid effect, uh, like equipoise. That used to be the classic horse steroid that was ruled out in the big brown era there when they admitted they were given all the horses anabolic steroids. So in addition to its airway effect, uh, opening airways, uh, an alleged anti-bleeding effect, that's what they would claim they were using it for, we started to notice, and it's been scientifically demonstrated, that the pharmacological effect is that of anabolic steroids. That's uh, an anabolic steroid. It, it creates an anabolic steroid effect, increasing muscle mass, strength, and uh, if increased muscle mass and strength, we still have the same skeletal structure. And so, again, it's another drug that exceeds the adaptability of the horse to stay on its feet. Uh, so it's a performance-enhancing doping agent. One question for you. Now, we've talked about steroids. I mean, we've talked about Winstraw. We talked, you brought up Equipoise. Um, I, I, and when, when I had horses in California, Winstraw was very prominent. Uh, equipoise may, gave you a lot of mass and made you stronger, but it didn't make you look as pretty as a Winstraw horse was. Uh, used it on a lot of fillies, and and it you know, do you believe that they outlawed back in 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 the day steroids, and they should have instead outlawed clenbuterol and kept the steroids? No, uh, they're both equally harmful and similarly harmful. Um, you know, when horses get debilitated and lose weight, there may be a, a valid medical reason to use them, but in athletic horses, uh, you know, we use anabolic steroids on aging, debilitated animals to kind of get them to put on weight. Uh, any use on athletic horses is for performance enhancement. You know, some horses may get sick and get behind, and that's how they were validating its use. But the next thing, I mean, I watched the veterinarians. I wasn't attending veterinarian. They'd show up, and every single horse in the stable would get it. Mandrolone was another big one. Uh, and uh, the jurisdictions tolerated it. Even though it could be tested for, they allowed it. The veterinarian lobby and the, the horseman lobby had them convinced it was you know, good medicine of sorts or essential or necessary medicine. But in the end, uh, the uh, intent was to enhance performance. And then again, the downside was uh, the, the anabolic steroids slash clenbuterol uh, began to exceed the adaptability of the horse, the adaptability of the skeletal system to maintain its integrity. And it, they started breaking down at a higher rate than was acceptable. What uh, does, when a horse got clenbuterol, um, did it ever become where you had to give them more clenbuterol to have the same effect? They got it every day. It was a daily dosing. Uh, 
I mean, they got it uh, daily. And, you know, then the racing jurisdiction and the testing, you know, labs put limits on it. There could only be so much in the blood or in the urine. So uh, as, as time went on, the, the veterinarians, the attending veterinarians, figured out the formula to give to when to start withdrawing it, stop giving it a week before the race. But the anabolic effect remains for several months after the last dose, so uh, or at least a couple months. So uh, it would be it's a big it was a big game between the attending pre-race veterinarians and the regulators and the testing labs. So they started to make them back off. But when we talk about anabolic steroids, we're talking about the same effect that clenbuterol uh, did. In addition, it opened airways. You know, it's sort of an asthma drug. Um, and again, part of the problem with the bleeding was these horses getting locked down. And the worst air I ever saw was in the stables in California and elsewhere. And then as this pre-race medication scenario began to develop, we saw trainers wall off their stables. So, you know, they couldn't be viewed. Veterinarians couldn't be seen going in there. And that, again, deteriorated the quality of air. So, indeed, air quality plays into pulmonary health and bleeding. And, you know, it used to be back in the day, all the horses, you know, you could see them all. Their heads were all out of the stall. The back of the stall was open, and then through the 80s and 90s, I, I watched all these trainers wall in all their stables, and you can go and see that everywhere. Uh, so that contributed to it, too. In order to facilitate the doping and make it secretive, they, you know, uh, lowered the air quality for these four horses. So, um, you know, it was a bad scenario, a bad cultural decay uh, and uh, you know this could all be reversed if we eliminate all the drugs and we can go to other racing jurisdictions in Ireland and England France in particular the Nordic countries Sweden in Sweden you know the policy is in France if a horse needs a medication then it's not fit to race and that's absolutely the correct approach so uh, if veterinarians making this case that therapeutic drugs are needed is invalid because if a horse needs therapeutic drugs, it really shouldn't be racing because, uh, you know, it, there'll be harmful effects from using therapeutic drugs to facilitate a horse to run a race. And the untoward sequelae is a breakdown in the end. There's other ones, lamenesses, shortened careers. So in addition, in the United States, we can see this, all this permitted drug use, uh, promiscuous drug use, has shortened the careers uh, of these horses. As more drugs became permitted, it was an inverse graph of shortened careers uh, back in the day. And in the countries where drugs are restricted, you know, the, uh, their careers are much longer. And they were able to race much more frequently way back in the day the sea biscuit days and so on. Let me ask you, um, how can we, uh, you mentioned how we can turn this around and stop using um, pre-race drugs. If you were voted to be czar or the veterinarian and, 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 and all the medications in horse racing, what would be the first thing you would do? 
Well, the first thing I've done already, it, 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 uh, there was plenty of other people helping, was eliminate the race date drug, the, the Lasix. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, we have all these models of how to do it correctly in France and Sweden. Uh, in England, to a little less, uh, maybe a little less so, but still better than here. So all the models are in place. So all we have to do is take the Hong Kong model and apply it here. Um, and things will immediately start to improve. Uh, additionally, the trainers, unfortunately, this culture, they've lost a lot of touch with what is appropriate horsemanship by their undue reliance on pharmaceuticals. So a lot of it's going to involve education. A lot of these trainers, even some of the very high-end ones, are going to have to be re-educated and you know, almost their minds need to be cognitively restructured to understand and appreciate the nature of the horse and how to train them appropriately and properly in the horse's best interest. So it can be a win-win situation for both the horse and the trainer and the owner, but that's not the case now. It's not a win situation for the horses. And in other jurisdictions, it is. Uh, So both the animal and the human can benefit, and it can be mutual beneficence. Uh, that's how horses and humans came together in the first place. They both helped each other, and so we have to return to that construct. What um, are you satisfied, or do you believe that our testing for performance-enhancing d- drugs is? is at, at, at a peak to where we can catch these things, or are we way behind on our testing? Uh, well, as it turned out, uh, they weren't able to pick up those performance-enhancing drugs that service Navarro or the others in the indictment and the veterinarians involved were obtaining and giving. So I don't think the testing will ever be able to keep up with the malfeasance, unfortunately, but... One way to eliminate malfeasance is to eliminate virtually all drugs. And um, so, you know, in Hong Kong, they have a more controlled situation. Every single horse is on the grounds. There's no really attending veterinarians per se. The veterinarians are hired by the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Uh, And the pharmacy is limited. If if you want to give a medication to a horse, you have to arrive at a diagnosis, and then you have to get approval to use a drug, and then the drug use is made public, and so on. And so everything down to the needles is controlled. So uh, there are ways, despite holes in testing, to uh, you know promote uh, medication-free or minimal medication racing. In other words, what you're saying is what we have to put up with. If we, like, for example, I have high blood pressure, uh, I can't get my medication unless I go to the doctor, he checks me out, and he gives me a prescription, period. And the, and the, and the pharmacist also bets that as well. So there's a backup thing because the pharmacist can call the doctor and say, hey, this doesn't look right. And also in hospitals where people are hospitalized, there's hospital pharmacists that... Um, double check on the doctors you know humans are apt to make errors and doctors are human Uh, so there's several safety nets 
uh, you know, that could be put in place. And, uh, you know, to regulate drugs out is one thing. Uh, what more has to be done is the culture has to change. The idea that horses need drugs to race has to be obliterated. And, uh, I mean, I don't understand how you guys can handicap races with all this stuff going on. <laughs> I think it will help the gamblers and everybody. Uh, so I think it's a win-win situation for owners, trainers, horses in particular. That's my main concern. I represent the health and welfare of horses. When people represent the health and welfare of horses or animals, they make a lot of human enemies, but so be it. That's uh, my question. But, That's my next question for you. You've, you've been very, very vocal the last couple of years on social media about, uh, about drugs and about Lasix and about Clenbuterol. Has that affected your practice? Has that affected you personally from people maybe lashing out at you? Well, uh, you know, if you're going to represent the health and welfare of animals, and, uh, you know, that's what I decided to do. You have to be thick-skinned, uh, you don't like people hating you and stuff. Uh, certainly, they ran me out of California because I wouldn't let them run sore horses. Uh, the HBTA, everywhere I worked as a regulatory veterinarian and worked effectively, I might add, where, where I'm around, I mean, you know, you can't fool me. I, I was an attending veterinarian. I know what they're up to. Uh, and as well, I have an eye like you. You have an eye for horses that might win on their work. I watch works and look for the horses that are going to lose or break down. And so over the decades, I developed an eye for gimpers, for soreness. And uh, there's a tolerance level these places would allow. I wouldn't let trainers run sore horses. Well, in order to maintain your job, you kind of got to let a few sore horses run or the not sore horses so sore and so I lost several jobs as regulatory vet for being too stringent but the upside was when I was working horses weren't breaking down I mean a few did but I could nearly eliminate it uh, and it's like I say I was raised by horses I started catching urine at 11 I was an attending veterinarian you know in Iceland they say it takes 200 years to become an accomplished horseman the point being that you know, you got to be around them a lot for a long time, and if you are and you're paying attention, you can develop an eye for it, and that's what your whole business is about, is an eye for these horses working in the morning and translating that into, you know, a good race in the afternoon uh, or maybe a bad race. So I have the eye, a gift. Uh, I don't want to be arrogant, but I can see how horses move, and I can assess their vulnerability and I got good at it. And much to the chagrin of trainers who had a lot of borderline horses. So the HBPA would put pressure on the regulatory vets, and eventually I would get moved out, and the breakdowns would resume. But where I worked, uh, I was able to minimize them. And it all, all went back to that 78 breakdowns in New York at Finger Lakes, and us stepping in and... You know, I had other veterinarians with me, and we developed an eye for what was going on. And it, it all relies now on these examining veterinarians looking at the horse in the morning. Well, I had better luck, like you do, watching horses walk off after a race. I started putting a lot of horses on the vet list after races. I could see them limp off the track. 
and I knew their next race wasn't going to be a pretty picture. So they got put on the vet list, and they had to work off it. So then we stopped making them medicate. Then the rate trainers would get around that by medicating the horses to work. And so then we started testing the workers after they worked. And uh, But still, I could see through a lot of the medication. It's, it's really not that hard if you've been watching horses move all your life. And you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You watch them move for your living, and you can see certain things. Uh, you know, these horses that wouldn't change leads, my goodness. I don't know how any person would let them race. But there were a few, that horse from South Africa wouldn't change leads. Uh, and, you know, didn't seem to be lame. That was a, a you know, an outlier. But uh, so it all gates, you know, the trot's sort of our standard gate, but uh, watching horses work, uh, you could really see a lot. You can pick out the winners. I can pick out the losers. Well, I'll tell you, the one thing that was really interesting to me was this past Breeder Cup at Santa Anita. I thought the, the attending veterinarians did a fantastic job, except you know what I'm talking about, Sid. You can mess up on one horse, and that's the one that's going to bite you. Uh, I remember watching Imperial Hint leading up to the sprint and I when he came on the track and he was jogging he wasn't right behind and the one thing I do immediately is I always watch a horse from the hind end forward I've seen too many trainers focus on the front side of a horse but not on the hind side of a horse and that's where horses shorten up stride is because they can't push off from behind or they don't switch leads because they can't push off from behind or they're off behind Imperial Hint wasn't right behind and he showed it and he hasn't looked the same since. Now, also, they missed one, and that was Mongolian Groom. I think that's the horse's name. Yeah, and, yeah. well, he's the one who broke down of all yes. races, and the, the most richest race in America with 18 vets, and it's the culture there. I, I know how it happens. There was a couple of the vets screaming, you know, he's, he should be out. He would be, he'd been in, his hawks hasn't been injected. He was going funny. People had it on film. I, I didn't like the work. I looked at the work, and when he went by me, I looked at uh, Brian Lazarica, my partner, and I said, he's not right behind. I don't like the way he moved. And there was video, and I showed him again because I like to train my people. And then all of a sudden, the videos all disappeared. Well, I, the culture there and the medical director and everybody, and the vets get all pulled into it. And I'm telling you, the culture has to change. We can make rules and eliminate drugs, but... Other things have to change, too, the, the, the social nature of the people. Uh, and like I say, it's not new ground. We, we have these other uh, example racing jurisdictions and policies in France and uh, in Hong Kong, China, of all places, where uh, they're doing it right. And so it's not like we're entering new territory we just have to embrace the places that have the lowest breakdown rates and uh, emulate their policies and uh the trainer's mentality there um so well i, I will uh, say this I, I will say this and i i think I, I try not to put a blanket on everybody i you know i'm in kentucky and you know you can call me a homer but I think the KHRC does a really good job out here. They're trying to do it right. They're trying to uh, have 
all the all the they're trying to be able to build a better a better culture out here in Kentucky than it has been, you know, in New York for a while it seemed like we don't want to hear about any positive test. We don't want to talk about it, we don't want to hear it, we're not going to publicize it. And and that's counterproductive. Um I think you need to have that that openness and and I'm hoping that the KHRC here the Kentucky Horse uh, Racing Commission can take a, a step forward and show like what you're saying about putting together, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm looking forward to this meet here at Keeneland, this whole next, this, those six months of the year are going to be around Kentucky and I, I being a homer, so to speak, maybe, maybe I am being, you know, uh, fair, but I've seen jurisdictions where I cannot absolutely keep it together. And like I said, I have to read between the lines. And there's other tracks where I'm going to look at the horses straight up. In K- and here in Kentucky, I think I can do that. Have you seen the same thing without mentioning names or going into its more specifics? Have you seen where other juris- some jurisdictions are farther ahead than uh, some other ones? Well, I want to give credit to people, thousands, that have really been tried to work hard for all I've been speaking of. Uh, of course, it's easy for me to pick out the people that seem to be working in the other direction, uh, promoting drugs and claiming they're essential, but every, there's many, many people. I'm one of a thousand people closely involved with the industry trying to make it right. So I commend and, and hope that all of those people continue to work hard and, and we are prevailing. Uh, we are making uh, things better. Uh, we've got Lasix out of the two-year-olds. We'll have Lasix out of the stake races next year. Um, that's a big, huge start. Uh, so the pendulum is swinging thanks to many people's work. Uh, me, perhaps least of all, I've mostly been writing, working with my pen. A lot of these people are on the ground and in the meetings and doing a lot of work. Woe, uh, the woe people, Arthur Hancock and his crew and his wife. Uh, the jockey club. Um, the, the jockey club's trying hard. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the Stronic group is trying hard. Um, you know, we all have our faults. We all have our weaknesses. But we're all trying to get it together and turn it all around and I think we're beginning to see uh, a lot of the work manifested in less drugs being given. And it's been going on for a long time. Um, there's just been a lot of opposition from the trainer groups uh, in particular. And uh, we need them to sort of get on board with this. And there's many trainers who are trying to get on board with this and who are. So a lot of people are working very, very hard. And it's just unfortunate we got in such a deep hole, but uh, we're, we're working out of it. So I and, commend and all those people. I agree with you. I mean, I know a lot of trainers that are really, really good people. And I call a lot of trainers friends. And, and it's sometimes I, during this conversation, I felt like we were just lumping everybody into one group. And I wanted to make sure to say... Hey, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that are honest. There are a lot of guys out there that are really working hard at their craft. They're learning every day. We got a lot of young trainers that are coming in 
And, and you know, Jason Barkley is one of them. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good kid. He's a kid. He's not. He's in his 20s now, early 30s. But he's, he's, he's a kid as far as a horseman is concerned. And he's learning, and he's doing, you know, really well, and I'm proud of him. You got guys like Jack Sisterson. Uh, we've got a lot of young, hopeful trainers that we're hopefully in the years to come will be able to bring this new level of culture that you speak about. Now, I do want to move forward and say, Sid, tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I think you have a book out, correct? Yeah, I'm a novelist. Uh, all my novels, well, Horses They Rode, it, it came out, I don't know, 2006. It, it, it's about a broke-down trainer from Playfair uh, who gets a second chance and makes a life and stuff. So it's a horse racing novel. Uh, my third novel was Swift Dam. It, it's really not about horse racing, but it's about the human horse bond. And that this last one, Horse Racing in America, I titled it. Uh, it, it's literary fiction, so I talk about human nature and a lot of other things, the treatment of veterans, uh, Native Americans, uh, the Native American relationship with horses and other animals, uh, some of the uh, indecencies that Native Americans veterans have suffered at the hands of American society. But in the end, it's a horse racing novel, and it sort of recreates that scenario it's a, narrated by a female veterinarian who was raised in a boarding school on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, a fictional character. But it involves her coming out to New York, lured by another veterinarian who was able to do a lot of good here but got pushed out. And it includes gambling and lameness and watching horses. And so it sort of summarizes in literary fashion our entire visit today. It specifically goes into all the drugs we talked about and all the, uh, all the good people trying to make things right as well as all the people that had, you know, set things wrong. And so Horse Racing in America is the novel, and uh, it, it summarizes our entire podcast visit today only it explores human nature as well as the nature of horses in literary fashion. So it's not for everybody. You have to like literary fiction to like this novel or any of my novels. But, you know, you've seen how I've operated on social media, as you say, and I testified at the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission on race day medication, and I wrote for the New York Times. You know, people have told me, well, good luck that way with that angle making things a better world for horses and people. Uh, you've got to do it creatively. So it's my attempt to creatively make the world a better place. And, and we commend you for that. And where can we pick up your books if we want to, if uh, fans out there want to come out and uh, purchase your books, where do they go? Yeah, you know, the COVID-19 lockdown, the bookstores are closed, so you have to get it online, Amazon.com. Uh, they will be available in the bookstores when uh, they open, and uh, many of my novels are available in many bookstores across the country, uh, mostly in Montana, my home state, you know, where I'm kind of a minor regional novelist. I haven't broke through into the big time and probably never will. Literary fiction doesn't sell like thriller and mystery fiction, but nonetheless, uh, I don't expect a lot of income or fame from my novels, uh, but it's what I do, and it's one of the activities that I use to keep myself and my mind healthy. So uh, so they're out there, Amazon.com, 
is where you get them until this lockdown uh, breaks up. And go ahead and tell it. This is Sid Gustafson, uh, and uh, novelist, veterinarian. Tell us the name of your three books. Uh, Horses They Rode. That's uh, probably my bestseller. The, you know, it was widely reviewed and approvingly reviewed. Uh, Swift Dam, uh, they're all veterinary novels. Uh, I guess Horses They Rode was more of a horse trainer novel. Swift Dam was a veterinary Native American novel. And this last one is sort of a uh, mix of them all. And, you know, it took 16 years to write. Uh, so it takes a long time to get the words in the right order and the theme right and everything. And, and then, of course, all novels are imperfect and flawed, and as are all of mine. But... A lot of people like them, so but not everybody. They're not for everybody, certainly. Uh, I'd love so to read. Yeah. I think I'm going to pick one up. Um, I'll, I'll probably I'll pick up your the, the first one you mentioned, Horses They Rode, and um, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I want to read that because you know I'm going to learn something from that. And uh, the one thing that that made me gravitate towards you is, but way back in 2012, is that you were honest and. And I remember there was one particular article that I caught on and I started reading and I went, whoa, I understand exactly what he's writing here and I can see what he's writing. Uh, obviously, in a certain board have you, had you remove that article after a little bit. But, um, but I, I, I learned right away that this guy's a straight shooter. He, tells, he, he, he talks about what he believes is the truth. And that's all we can hope for. And, and especially nowadays, all we can hope for is somebody's going to tell us the truth, at least the, the truth that they, they have worked hard to figure out what it is. Because we don't, you know, there's too many people now that don't believe anything anymore. And that's sad. Well, it's been a great visit, Bruno. And uh, I always admire your work. I hope to hang out on the rail someday with you and watch horses move. I just love doing that. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoy, uh, including the, the races, of course. So I want everybody to understand I'm trying to save and promote racing, and a lot of people think I'm trying to get it shut down. But uh, I just want everyone to do it right and the horses to be in a win situation along with the people. And I'm especially concerned about the riders of these horses. We haven't talked about that. But when horses break down, jockeys, uh, you know, lives are put in danger. And so... Uh, the, the, on a closing note, here's to the jockeys. Here's to the jockeys, and I'll pop up a beer open a little later, and I've really enjoyed this, Sid. I'm hoping that maybe uh, as we go down the, down the road, maybe towards Breeders' Cup, I might have to reach out to you and say, I loved your book, and I want to get you on again. Thank you so much. Sid Gustafson, veterinarian, writer, novelist, and really loved the, the, the way he expressed himself on the show. Thank you, Sid. Thank you. Take care. And I'm really excited about this Churchill Downs and later on Kentucky Derby on September 5th. I know the hard work that the KHRC, the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission, the Jockey Club have put in to remove Lasix from the two-year-olds, uh, two-year-old races, and also next year will be stakes races. Um... It's going to be a different game. It's going to be a different culture. And I really applaud all involved that have worked hard to make that happen. And I'm really looking forward to, to Churchill Downs meet starting on Saturday, May 16th. 
But great, thanks, uh, thanks very much to Sid for taking time out. And I'll tell you what, he's opinionated. He believes in what he, he, he's learned. He believes in what he knows. And anytime somebody that has that sort of experience, um, I want to I wanna, I wanna pick their brain. And I hope you've enjoyed it too. So you have a great day. Have a great weekend. And I'll be talking to you soon.